Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 4. Joy and Happiness for Everybody Whether the drags reach the county asylum in time to be of any service is still a mystery. But Mr. Joseph Peters arrived with a punt at the boat builder's yard in the dusk of the autumn evening. He was alone, and he left his boat, his tridents, and other fishing tackle in the care of the men belonging to the yard, and then, putting his hands in his pockets, trudged off in the direction of Little Gulliver Street. If ever Mr. Peters had looked triumphant in his life, he looked triumphant this evening. If ever his mouth had been on one side, it was on one side this evening. But it was the twist of a conqueror which distorted that feature. Eight years, too, have done something for Cuppins. Time hasn't forgotten Cuppins, though she is a humble individual. Time has touched up Cuppins, adding a little bit here and taking away a little bit there, and altogether producing something rather imposing. Cuppins has grown. When that young lady had attained her tenth year, there was a legend current in Little Gulliver Street and its vicinity that in consequence of a fatal predilection for gin and bitters, evinced by her mother during the infancy of Cuppins, that diminutive person would never grow any more. But she gave the lie both to the legend and the gin and bitters by outgrowing her frocks at the advanced age of seventeen, and now she was rather a bouncing young woman than otherwise, and had a pair of such rosy cheeks as would have done honour to healthier breezes than those of Slopperton on the Sloshy. Time had done something, too, for cup and shock of hair, for it was now brushed and combed and dragged and tortured into a state not so very far from smoothness, and it was furthermore turned up, an achievement in the hairdressing line which it had taken her some years to effect, and which, when effected, was perhaps a little calculated to remind the admiring beholder of a good-sized ball of black cotton with a hairpin struck through it. What made Cuppins in such a state of excitement on this particular evening? Who shall say? Certain it is that she was excited. At the first sound of the click of Mr. Peter's latchkey in the door of number five, Little Gulliver Street, Cuppins, with a lighted candle, flew to open it. How she threw her arms round Mr. Peter's neck and kissed him. How she left a lump of tallow in his hair and a smell of burning in his whiskers. How, in her excitement, she blew the candle out and how by a feat of leisure de main, or leisure de lungs, she blew it again, must have been seen to be sufficiently appreciated. Her next proceeding was to drag Mr. Peters upstairs into the indoor Eden, which bore the very same appearance it had done eight years ago. One almost expected to find the red baby grown up, but it wasn't. And that dreadful attack of the mumps, from which the infant had suffered when Mr. Peters first became acquainted with it, 
did not appear to have abated in the least. Cuppins thrust the detective into his own particular chair, planted herself in an opposite seat, put the candlestick on the table, snuffed the candle, and then, with her eyes open to the widest extent, evidently awaited his saying something. He did say something in his own way, of course. The fingers went to work. I've d said the fingers. On it, cried Cuppins, dreadfully excited by this time. Done it. You've done it. Didn't I always say you would? Didn't I know you would? Didn't I always dream you would? Three times running, and a house on fire. That meant the river, and an army of soldiers. That meant the boat, and everybody in black clothes, meaning joy and happiness. It's come true. It's all come out. Oh, I'm so happy. In proof of which, Cuppins immediately commenced a series of evolutions of the limbs and exercises of the human voice, popularly known in the neighborhood as strong hysterics. So strong, in fact, that Mr. Peters couldn't have held her still if he had tried. Perhaps that's why he didn't try, but he looked about in every direction for something cold to put down her back, and finding nothing handy but the poker, he stirred her up with that in the neighborhood of the spinal marrow, as if she'd been a bad fire, whereon she came to. "'And where's the blessed boy?' she asked presently. Mr. Peters signified upon his fingers that the blessed boy was still at the asylum, and that there he must remain till such time as he should be able to leave without raising suspicion. "'And to think,' said Cuppins, "'that we should have thought of sending our slosh to take the situation. "'And to think that he should have been so clever in helping you through with it. "'Oh, my!' As Cuppins here evinced a desire for a second edition of the hysterics, Mr. Peters changed the conversation by looking inquiringly towards a couple of saucepans on the fire. Tripe, said Cuppins, answering the look, and taters, flowery ones, whereon she began to lay the supper table. Cuppins was almost mistress of the house now, for the elderly proprietress was a sufferer from rheumatism and kept to her room, "'enlivened by the society of a large black cat "'and such gossip as Cuppins collected about the neighborhood "'in the course of the day "'and retold to her mistress in the evening. "'So we leave Mr. Peters smoking his pipe "'and roasting his legs at his own hearth, "'while Cuppins dishes the tripe and onions "'and strips the floury potatoes of their russet jackets. "'Where all this time is the Emperor Napoleon?' There are two gentlemen pacing up and down the platform of the Birmingham station, waiting for the 10 p.m. London Express. One of them is Mr. Augustus Darley. The other is a man wrapped in a greatcoat, who has red hair and whiskers, and wears a pair of spectacles. But behind these spectacles, there are dark brown eyes, which scarcely match the red hair, any better than the pale dark complexion agrees with the very roseate hue of the whiskers. These two gentlemen have come across the country from a little station a few miles from Slopperton on the Sloshy. Well, Dick, said Darley, doesn't this bring back old times, my boy? The red-haired gentleman who was smoking a cigar took it from his mouth and clasped his companion by the hand and said, It does, Gus, old fellow, and when I forget the share you've had in today's work, may I go back to that place and eat out my own heart, as I've done for eight years. There was something so very like a mist behind his spectacles and such an ominous thickness in his voice as the red-haired gentleman said this that Gus proposed a glass of brandy 
before the train started. "'Come, Dick, old fellow, you're quite womanish tonight, I declare. "'This won't do, you know. "'I shall have to knock up some of our old pals "'and make a jolly night of it when we get to London. "'Though it will be tomorrow morning if you go on in this way.' "'I'll tell you what it is, Gus,' replied the red-haired gentleman. "'Nobody who hadn't gone through what I've gone through "'could tell you what I feel tonight.' I think, Gus, I shall end by being mad in real earnest, and that my release will do what my imprisonment even couldn't affect, turn my brain. But I say, Gus, tell me, tell me the truth. Did any of the old fellows, did they ever think me guilty? Not one of them, Dick, not one. And I know if one of them had so much as hinted at such a thought, the others would have throttled him before he could have said the words. Have another drop of brandy he said hastily, thrusting the glass into his hand. "'You've no more pluck than a kitten or a woman, Dick.' "'I had pluck enough to bear eight years of that,' said the young man, pointing in the direction of Slopperton. "'But this does rather knock me over. "'My mother, you'll write to her, Gus. "'The sight of my hand might upset her. "'Without a word of warning, you'll write and tell her "'that I've got a chance of escaping, "'and then you'll write and say that I have escaped. "'We must guard against a shock, Gus.' She suffered too much already on my account. At this moment, the bell rang for the train starting. The young men took their seats in a second-class carriage, and away sped the engine, out through the dingy manufacturing town, into the open moonlight country. Gus and Richard light their cigars and wrap themselves in their railway rugs. Gus throws himself back and drops off to sleep. He can almost smoke in his sleep, and in a quarter of an hour... He is dreaming of a fidgety patient who doesn't like comic songs and who can never see the point of a joke, but who has three pretty daughters and who pays his bill every Christmas without even looking at the items. But Richard Marwood doesn't go to sleep. Will he ever sleep again? Will his nerves ever regain their tranquility after the intense excitement of the last three or four days? He looks back looks back at that hideous time, and wonders at its hopeless suffering, wonders till he is obliged to wrench his mind away from the subject for fear he should go mad. How did he ever endure it? How did he ever live through it? He had no means of suicide. He might have dashed at his brains against the wall. He might have resolutely refused food and so have starved himself to death. How did he endure it? Eight years, eight centuries and every hour a fresh age of anguish. Looking back now, he knows what then he did not know, that at the worst, that in his bitterest despair, there is a vague, undefined something, so vague and undefined that he did not recognize it for itself, a glimmering ray of hope, by the aid of which alone he bore the dreadful burden of his days, and with clasped hands and bent head he renders up to that God from whose pity came this distant light at thanksgiving, which perhaps is not the less sincere and heartfelt for a hundred reckless words said long ago, which rise up now in his mind a shame and a reproach. Perhaps it was such a trial as this that Richard Marwood wanted, to make him a good and earnest man, something to awaken dormant energies, something to arouse the better feelings of a noble soul, to stimulate to action an intellect hitherto wasted, something to throw him back upon the God he had forgotten, and to make him ultimately that which God, in creating such a man, meant him to become. 
away flies the engine. Was there ever such an open country? Was there ever such a moonlight night? Was earth ever so fair or the heavens ever so bright since man's universe was created? Not for Richard. He is free, free to breathe that blessed air, to walk that glorious earth, free to track to his doom the murderer of his uncle. In the dead of the night, the express train rattles into the Euston Square station. Richard and Gus spring out and jump into a cab. Even smoky London, asleep under the moonlight, is beautiful in the eyes of Daredevil Dick, as they rattle through the deserted streets on the way to their destination. Chapter 5 The Cherokees Take an Oath The cab stops in a narrow street in the neighborhood of Drury Lane, before the door of a small public house, which announces itself in tarnished gilt letters on a dirty board as The Cherokee by Jim Stilson. Jim Stilson is a very distinguished professor of the noble art of self-defense, and, in consequence of a peculiar playful knack he has with his dexter fist, is better known to his friends and the general public as the left-handed smasher. Of course, at this hour of the night, the respectable hostelry is wrapped in that repose which befits the house of a landlord who puts up his shutters and locks his door as punctually as the clocks of St. Mary Lestrand and St. Clement Dane strike the midnight hour. There is not so much as the faintest glimmer of a rushlight in one of the upper windows. But for all that, Richard and Darley alight, and having dismissed the cab, Gus looks up and down the street to see that it is clear puts his lips to the keyhole of the door of Mr. Stilson's hostelry and gives an excellent imitation of the feeble meow of an invalid member of the feline species. Perhaps the left-handed smasher is tender-hearted, for the door is softly opened just wide enough to admit Richard and his friend. The person who opens the door is a young lady who has apparently being surprised in the act of putting her hair in curl papers as she hurriedly thrust her brush and comb in among the biscuits and meat pies in a corner of the bar. She is evidently very sleepy, and rather inclined to yawn in Mr. Augustus Darley's face. But as soon as they're safe inside, she fastens the door and resumes her station behind the bar. There is only one gas lamp alight, and it is rather difficult to believe that the gentleman seated in the easy chair before an expiring fire in the bar parlor, his noble head covered with a red cotton bandana, is neither more nor less than the immortal left-handed one. But he snores loud enough for the whole prize ring, and the nervous listener is inclined to wish that he had made a point of clearing his head before he went to sleep. "'Well, Sophia Maria,' says Mr. Darley, "'are they all up there?' pointing in the direction of a door that leads to the stairs." "'Most every one of them, sir. "'There's no getting them to break it up nohow. "'Mr. Splitters has been and wrote a drama for the Victory Theatre, "'and they've been a chafing of him awful "'because there's fifteen murders "'and four low-comedy servants that all say, "'No, you don't,' in it. "'The governor had to go up just now and talk to them, "'for they was throwing quart-pots at each other playful. "'Then I'll run up and speak to them for a minute,' said Gus. "'Come along, Dick.' "'How about your friend, sir? "'He isn't a cheerful, is he, sir?' "'Oh, I'll answer for him,' said Gus. "'It's all right, Sophia Maria. "'Bring us a couple of glasses of brandy and water hot, "'and tell the smasher to step up when I ring the bell.' 
Sophia Maria looked doubtfully from Gus to the slumbering host and said, "'He'll wake up savage if I disturb him. "'He's off for his first sleep now, "'and he'll go to bed as soon as the place is clear. "'Never mind, Sophia. "'Wake him up when I ring and send him upstairs. "'He'll find something there to put him in a good temper. "'Come, Dick, tumble up. "'You know the way.' The cheerful Cherokees made their proximity known by such a stifling atmosphere of tobacco about the staircase as would have certainly suffocated anyone not initiated in their mysteries. Gus opened the door of a back room on the first floor, of a much larger size than the general appearance of the house would have promised. This room was full of gentlemen who, size, costume, and personal advantages, varied as much as it is possible for any one room full of gentlemen to do, Some of them were playing billiards. Some of them were looking on, betting on the players, or more often upbraiding them for such play as, in the cheerful dialect, came under the sweeping denunciation of the Cherokee adjective duffing. Some of them were eating a peculiar compound entitled Welsh rarebit, a pleasant preparation, if it had not painfully reminded the casual observer of mustard or yellow soap in a state of solution while lively friends knocked the ashes of their pipes into their plates, abstracted their porter just as they were about to imbibe that beverage, and in like fascinating manner beguiled the festive hour. One gentleman, a young Cherokee, had had a rare bit and had gone to sleep with his head in his plate and his eyebrows and his mustard. Some were playing cards, some were playing dominoes. One gentleman was in tears because the double six he wished to play had fallen into a neighboring spittoon, and he lacked either the moral courage or the physical energy requisite for picking it up. But as with the exception of the sleepy gentleman, everybody was talking very loud and on an entirely different subject, the effect was lively, not to say distracting. "'Gentlemen,' said Gus, "'I have the honor of bringing a friend whom I wish to introduce to you.' "'All right, Gus,' said the gentleman engaged at Domino's. "'That's the cove I ought to play.' and fixing one half-open eye on the spotted ivory, he lapsed into a series of imbecile imprecations on everybody in general, and the domino in particular. Richard took a seat at a little distance from this gentleman, and at the bottom of the long table a seat sacred on grand occasions to the vice-chairman. Some rather noisy lookers-on at the billiards were a little inclined to resent this, and muttered something about Dick's red wig and whiskers, "'in connection with the popular accompaniments "'to a boiled round of beef. "'I say, Darley,' cried a gentleman "'who held a billiard cue in his hand, "'I say, old fellow, "'I hope your friends committed a murder or two, "'because then splitters can put him in a new piece. "'Splitters, who had for four hours "'been in a state of abject misery "'from the unmerciful allusions "'to his last chef d'oeuvre, "'gave a growl from a distant corner of the table,' where he was seeking consolation in everybody else's glass, and as everybody drank a different beverage, was not improving his state of mind thereby. "'My friend never committed a murder in his life, Splitters, so he won't dramatize on that score. But he's been accused of one, and he's as innocent as you are, who never murdered anything in your life but Lindley Murray in the language of your country.' "'Who's been murdering somebody?' said the domino player, passing his left hand through his hair." "'Who's murdered? I wish everybody was, "'and that I could dance my favorite dance upon their graves. "'Blow that double six. He's the fellow I ought to play.' "'Perhaps you'll give us your auburn-haired friend's name, Darley,' 
said a gentleman with his mouth full of Welsh rarebit. He doesn't seem too brilliant to live. He'd better have gone to the Deadly Livelies in the other street. The Deadly Livelies was the rival club, which plumed itself on being a cut above the Cherokees. Who's dead? muttered the domino player. I wish everybody was, and that I was contracted with to bury him cheap. I should have won the game, he added plaintively, if I could have picked up that double six. I suppose your friend wants to be vice at our next meeting, said the gentleman with the billiard cue, who in default of a row always complained that the assembly was too quiet for him. It wouldn't be the first time if he were vice, and it wouldn't be the first time if you made him chair, said Gus. Come, old fellow, tell them you're come back, and ask them if they're glad to see you. The red-haired gentleman at this sprang to his feet, threw off the rosy locks and the ferocious whiskers, and looked round at the Cherokees with his hands in his pockets. Daredevil Dick! A shout arose, one brief wild huzzah, such as had not been heard in that room, which, as we know, was none of the quietest within the memory of the oldest Cherokee. Daredevil Dick escaped, come back, as handsome as ever, as jolly as ever, as glorious a fellow, as through-going as a brick, as noble-hearted a trump as eight years ago, when he had been the life and soul of all of them. Such shaking of hands, everybody shaking hands with him again and again, and then everybody shaking hands with everybody else, and the billiard player wiping his eyes with his cue, and the sleepy gentleman waking up and rubbing the mustard into his drowsy optics, and the domino player, even he, makes a miraculous effort, picks up the double six, and presents it to Richard. Take it, take it, old fellow, and may it make you happy. If I'd played that domino, I should have won the game. Upon which he relapsed into the aforesaid imbecile imprecations, in mixed French and English, on the inhabitants of a world not capable of appreciating him. It was a long time before anything like quiet could be restored, but when it was, Richard addressed the meeting. Gentlemen, before the unfortunate circumstance which has so long separated us, you knew me, I believe, well, and I am proud to think you esteemed and trusted me. Did they? Oh, rather. They jingled all the glasses and broke three, in the enthusiastic protestation of an affirmative. I need not allude to the unhappy accusation of which I have been the victim. You are, I understand, acquainted with the full particulars of my miserable story, and you render me happy by thinking me to be innocent. By thinking him to be innocent, by knowing him to be innocent, they are so indignant at the bare thought of anybody believing otherwise that somebody in the doorway, the smasher himself, "'growls out something about a forcible adjective, noise, and the police. "'Gentlemen, I have this day regained my liberty, "'thanks to the exertions of a person to whom I am also indebted for my life, "'and thanks also to the assistance of my old friend, Gus Darley. "'Everybody here insisted on shaking hands over again with Gus, "'which was rather a hindrance to the speaker's progress. "'But at last Richard went on. "'Now, gentlemen,' "'Relying on your friendship—here, here, and another glass broken— "'I'm about to appeal to you to assist me in the future object of my life. "'That object will be to discover the real murderer of my uncle, Monahue Harding. "'In what manner, when, or where you may be able to assist me in this, "'I cannot at present say. "'But you are all gentlemen, men of talent. 
more glasses broken, and a good deal of beer spilt into everybody's boots. You were all men of varied experience, of inexhaustible knowledge of the world, and of the life of London. Strange things happen every day of our lives. Who shall say that someone amongst you may not fall by some strange accident, or let me say rather by the handiwork of providence, across a clue to this at present entirely unraveled mystery? Promise me, therefore, gentlemen, to give me the benefit of your experience. And whenever that experience throws you into the haunts of bad men, remember that the man I seek may, by some remote chance, be amongst them, and that to find him is the one object of my life. I cannot give you the faintest index to what he may be or who he may be. He may be dead and beyond the reach of justice, but he may live, and if he does... Heaven grant that the man who has suffered the stigma of his guilt may track him to his doom. Gentlemen, tell me that your hearts go with me. They told him so, not once but a dozen times, shaking hands with him and pushing divers' liquors into his hand every time. But they got over it at last, and the gentlemen with the billiard cue wrapped their heads with that instrument to tranquilize them, and then rose as president and said, "'Richard Marwood, our hearts go with you, thoroughly and entirely, "'and we swear to give you the best powers of our intellects "'and the utmost strength of our abilities to aid you in your search. "'Gentlemen, are you prepared to subscribe to this oath?' "'They were prepared to subscribe to it, and they did subscribe to it, "'every one of them, rather noisily, but very heartily. "'When they had done so, a gentleman emerges from the shadow of the doorway,' who was no other than the illustrious left-handed one, who had come upstairs in answer to Darley's summons, just before Richard addressed the Cherokees. The smasher was not a handsome man. His nose had been broken a good many times, and that hadn't improved him. He had a considerable number of scars about his face, including almost every known variety of cut, and they didn't improve him. His complexion, again, bore perhaps too close a resemblance to mottled soap to come within the region of the beautiful. But he had a fine and manly expression of countenance, which, in his amiable moments, reminded the beholder of a benevolent bulldog. He came up to Richard and took him by the hand. It was no small ordeal of courage to shake hands with a left-handed smasher, but Daredevil Dick stood it like a man. "'Mr. Richard Marwood,' said he, "'you've been a good friend to me "'ever since you was old enough.' "'He stopped here "'and cast about in his mind "'for the fitting pursuits of early youth. "'Ever since you was old enough "'to give a cove a black eye "'or knock your friend's teeth down his throat "'with a light backhander. "'I've known you downstairs, "'a swearing at the barmaid, "'and holding your own "'against the whole lot of the cheerfuls, "'when other young gents of your age "'was a-making themselves bad "'with sweet stuffs and green apples "'and calling it life.' "'I've known you helped that gent yonder,' "'he gave a jerk with his big thumb "'in the direction of the domino player, "'to wrench off his own paw's knocker "'and send it to him by two-penny post next morning, seventeen and sixpence to pay postage. "'But I never knowed you to do a bad action "'or to hit out upon a cove as was down.' "'Richard thanked the smasher for his good opinion, "'and they shook hands again. "'I'll tell you what it is,' continued the host. "'I'm a man of few words.' "'If a cove offends me, I give him my left between his eyes playful. "'If he does it again, I give him my left again, with a meaning, and he don't repeat it. 
If a gen as I like does me proud, I feels grateful, and when I has a chance, I show my gratitude. Mr. Richard Marwood, I'm your friend, the last spoonful of my claret, and let the man as murdered your uncle keep clear of my left molly if he wants to preserve his beauty. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.